Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Hi everyone, it's Han from Full of Beans. This week I'm joined by Claire Steedman and Rachel Alderburn. Claire and Rachel are the founders of TEDS, which stands for the Eating Disorder Specialists. In this week's podcast, we talk about recovery and how TEDS work with their clients to determine what recovery might look like for them. We also talk about the challenges such as change and fear and how a client's identity, motivations and their values can be altered during their recovery. We also talk about new coping mechanisms and how to develop them and speak about the process of EMDR as a therapeutic model. We do discuss eating disorder behaviours as usual and so if this is something that you don't feel you can listen to right now, please know that this podcast will be ready when you are. With that in mind, let's get on with today's podcast with Claire and Rachel from TEDS. Hello. Hello again. How are we? Lovely to be back on the podcast, Hannah. Yeah, just over a year since you came on last, which means that you guys are two now. Yeah. Yes, yeah. it's only two in March. Yeah, another year on. Yeah, because our, our birthdays do coincide, don't they? Mine is the first one. Yes, mm. we're really, really close. We should, we should yeah. definitely have a joint party. That would yeah. be amazing. <laughs> When's your birthday? So we are the... Us is the 23rd of March. Oh, okay. That would work then. That would work. I feel like this podcast, um, I've had so many revelations. I mean, obviously we're talking about Full of Beans and Ted's birthday, but like, there's been like three episodes where when I've started talking to people, it's been about their birthday and I've realised that their birthday is also in January, like super close to mine. Um, so I think this should be called the birthday podcast rather than... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that would be, I think it's 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 amazing isn't it to think about I don't know about yourself but just to think about the time has actually went really quick you know and it's it's a if you you kind of keep pinching yourself that you've actually been that it's been going for this long you know that you've kind of managed to um establish something and then help it thrive and grow and so yeah, I feel very grateful about it, about it all still being in existence yeah. and thriving. Yeah, I think it's brilliant, you know, like to think just over two years ago, like you guys were literally just starting out. Mm. You know, you'd come together knowing that the kind of treatment that you wanted to provide and thinking, we're gonna do this. And you're still here. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. That's obviously what people need and what people wanted as well. So we're clearly doing it. Thank you. I mean, it has it has evolved. And I think this is some of the things that we'll be talking about today in terms of how it's evolved and what we've, we're still learning all the time, learning the process, learning what people need, meeting new people. They teach us as much as we're kind of, you know, um, as we're supporting them. So it's it's uh, we feel incredibly grateful. Mm. Yeah. So I guess... I mean, today we're going to talk about sort of working with clients and do you call them clients? We do, yeah. I know that there's so many terms that people float around depending on what, what service or, you know, um, who you're working with. So I guess thinking about sort of working with your clients, 
what does recovery look like? You know, I'm, I'm sure that it looks very different for everybody, but how, how do you find out what recovery is going to look like for somebody when you take them on? Mm. But I think you, you're absolutely right there, Hannah. Recovery is so individual. Um, it really does depend on what someone deems recovery is going to be like in their life, depending on perhaps, you know, what how long they might have had the eating disorder um, in terms of if it's something that's been a part of their identity, if it's something that's been quite short lived. It really does depend on um, that process there of what they're looking for. It might just be some stability. It might be, you know, what, what we would call as full recovery, where someone is really kind of free from from the eating disorder and is living a full life and perhaps gone on to, you know, do things in career aspects or maybe have a family or, you know, something like that. So again, it, it really is really um individual. Mm. And it's it's a it's a the process is very, very subjective and very unique to each person. And I think that even the words like recovery, you know, you were you were connecting earlier, um, Han, about you know what 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 do we kind of say about are they your clients what terminology do we use and sometimes we can get really lost I think in language and recovery is one of these things isn't it that's thrown around quite a lot oh I'm in recovery I'm in recovery but it's a really messy really subjective process and it's it's not even really I, I think using the word encapsulates so much you know and it's so different for each individual um and I think what comes with recovery is whatever that person aspires to achieve, whatever their personal goals are, their aims. Um, and I think it's also about a lot of it, and what Rachel and I were reflecting on recently, is that the actual process comes with a great deal of change. You know, people kind of enter in at the start and after kind of going through the therapeutic you know process at the end there's been a lot a lot of major life changes and transitions that have happened and I think some people don't really um expect that of recovery you know they just think right I want to recover from my eating disorder I want to change these behaviors I want to you know have a healthy uh, connection with food and with myself and with my body but actually it's really not a it's not about the foods, really. It's about someone working on themselves and their identity and making those changes, which means that that void is no longer there. It's not filled by an eating disorder and it's filled by other things. And what comes with that is really, really huge life transitions. You know, we've, we have clients who have, you know, if we reflect on the start of their process and where they are now, you know, there's been major shifts. People have changed vocations. They've changed um, relationships within their family or with their with significant others. Um, people, they really have to shake things up. And I think that's something that's quite unexpected about recovery. You know, when you say that it, it's, but it does take, it, it, there's major life transitions that come with it as part of that process. Mm. I think when we uh, when we get inquiries that come through, 
we always do like a pre-assessment call with them just on the phone obviously we don't want to put people in for an assessment knowing that they're not right for a service or we're not what, what they might be looking for and they're really interesting conversations with people and just recently I was, was talking to a parent and it's initially coming into therapy there's a lot of preconceptions about what that might be and actually it might be just like okay well we'll get someone eating again we'll focus on that um and then everything will be okay but when you talk about what recovery means like Claire said it's not about the food that's just the symptom of something underneath that's what's you know it's what how it's being presented but you start working with people and you know the functions of it the reasons why it's there in their life you start thinking about you know why it came uh, why it's still maintained in their life you start thinking about their sense of self who they are their values start working on all them levels and so much more comes to the surface you start you know when you're working in the kind of model we do looking at the past the present and the future it 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 does take some time and obviously once you've got to develop that rapport initially you start then going down all these avenues and people do start to think okay well is this actually what I want to do? Have I chosen all these things because I haven't felt like I've had a strong sense of self? They start to question things that <clears throat> they think that they might like or think they have wanted to do or even relationships they might be currently in or or from the past that they're still keeping, maintaining their relationships and they might not be as healthy as they initially thought. All these kind of things that come up and then they start to reevaluate and reflect on. Um, it's really hard to explain to someone that that might happen in this process. And that sounds a bit terrifying if you're telling mm. someone that from the offset, because it's, it is, it's, it's hard, really hard. But um, we definitely see that definitely people that we work with long term uh, major transitions um, just in, in, you know, in recovery, that process that we call recovery. Mm. I think it's, it's really interesting kind of that you've mentioned this because it's something that I am recognizing a lot in my own recovery right now um and I think you know so often and maybe this is like a stigma or like a you know a misconception about recovery so often I think that people that don't have an eating disorder do think that eating disorder recovery is just about you know getting yourself back eating being more flexible with food you know if you're thinking of anorexia maybe gaining a bit of weight, that sort of thing. And they are obviously elements of it. But for me, it's like 5%. Mm. And actually, you know, because I recently went on holiday with my mum and, you know, I was being pretty flexible with food and, um, you know, kind of having what I wanted and I was feeling really good. But it was actually the bigger picture of things, you know, the thoughts around it, my, my then compensatory behaviours, those actions and so that to me made me realize okay this probably it is the food but it's not the food completely but then also that idea of change and I spoke to my mum so much about it on holiday in that I've been eating sort of since I was 12 so my whole stages of development have been completely engulfed in, in the eating disorder and you know I was saying to her like I don't even know like my GCSEs, my A-levels, my university choices were based around my eating disorder. My music choices were because I was depressed. Like, it's, mm. And so I think the thing that for me was then like, oh, my God, was, OK, so not only am I being asked to eat more food, gain weight, which is terrifying, I'm literally being asked to question every mm. single thing in my life as to, you know, do I like that? 
is that friendship working for me? Is this relationship mm. working for me? Like, do I actually want different things? Do I have different morals compared to mm. what you sort of is? And that, I think, brings up massive mm. barrier up because you're so used to eating to sort of just suppressing mm. all those feelings and giving you those predefined answers. You know, okay, you're out for dinner. Um, you will have the salad. That's what you're going to have. Or, you know, you're going shopping. You will buy this item. Mm. I think that is what you will have. So I guess in that whole sort of synopsis, when someone comes to you and they are ready to recover and then you have to say to them, like, potentially there's going to be all these changes, how do you even begin to pick apart and navigate that with them? Because to me, that is what's really holding me back at the moment is like life is pretty crap with an eating disorder, but at least I'm not having to like flip everything upside down. It's such a significant issue, isn't it? And I think it really is. I think the key thing, Hannah, is attachment with your therapist is really important. Having attachment and we reflect on this a lot is that and I hope, you know, if, if our clients are listening to this, you know, that they all feel very attached to us. Reflect quite a lot on how that can carry someone through those significant changes, those really scary changes. And obviously, it's about attaching and then detaching, you know, allowing a client to then have the skills and resources, kind of being in that relationship, that therapeutic relationship with us, building that rapport. And what comes with that hand is like getting to know someone. So what you're saying about the identity issue, you know, being an illness almost, and that illness, if it's been there from, a, from an early age, kind of then tainting decisions and, and, and life really that's all contributing in your formative years to you being who you are right now. However, there will be parts that weren't. And I think that's a key focus of our work. Specific, you know, I always hold that in mind is I want to get to know who this person is. Now, there are cases where people have had this since they were 12, 9, you know, young, young age since they were children however there are parts that you can if there is not a lot based on that attachment you can help someone explore who they are and in, in, in the present and who they you know who they want to be in the future and I think that's that's a key area of, of when anyone's looking for therapy and embarking on this big journey because it is a big journey it is significant Mm-hmm. And it's not easy. It's not easy. Mm-hmm. But if you have a really good attachment with a therapist or therapists in our case, and you feel held and you feel cared for and you feel seen, I think people can make all sorts of huge changes. And we see it. We have seen it. We are privileged mm-hmm. to see it. You know, I feel so grateful. You know, some of our clients, the changes they've they're making or I've made you know I think wow that is that is like fierce like they're doing that (laughs) and we're right beside them walking beside them right there and that takes you know this is this is where yes it's a huge process it's it's life-changing it really is and yeah it can be scary if you've lived with this for a long time and you're not quite sure where you start and where it stops It's bloody. Mm. However, there will be parts of you that are you, particularly if you've been engaged with life. 
you know, like you've been to, mm. you have been engaged, you have been exposed to things that are outside dating disorders control, relationships, those kind of things, environments. And I think that is our job really to build that rapport, build that attachment and connection, and then explore, okay, who are you? Why is this here? What void does it fill in? And this is me kind of making it very kind of simplified, but why is this? Why did this come into your life? Why is it here? What function does it serve? And usually there's many. And then thinking about, okay, how can we replace those functions? But then what changes is that going to have to, what does that mean for you? And what does that mean for your life? Mm -hmm. And yes, that does then have a ripple effect because a basic example would be, for example, just say someone lacks a, you know, lacks assertiveness, quite passive, just say. So a strand, and it wouldn't have been the whole cause, but a strand of it is that they can communicate their distress through the physical manifestation of distress, i.e., you know, not eating, kind of, they can communicate that way. So it has that function. So you work alongside someone, you figure out that that's one of the strands. You then help them develop assertiveness, communication skills. Inevitably, that might change their relationships because they might have had friendship groups that were used to that person being passive and being the follower rather than the, the leader. Or they might be in a relationship, they might be in a kind of intimate relationship and might be a marriage or, you know, since they were really young, you know, 17, 18, and now they're having to evaluate that and think about, okay, I've made these changes and it's not quite working. So this relationship has to now, these are the significant changes we're touching on. And that's a very, you know, I've picked out one strand. It's, it's not that simple, but if you then make those changes, you're becoming closer to your true self, as in you, as an individual, and moving away from the illness. And that's the, that's the key thing. It's, it's, I think, attachment with a good therapist, feeling, feeling held and seen, exploration, who are you? And then making those steps, building, you know, learning those skills, making those changes, um, with support, really. And, and the, and the, and actually once, what, what I have observed recently is the simple act of a person making a change. You know, just like leaving a relationship or being assertive with a parent or doing changing a job. The simple act of doing that, even just doing that, creates a benefit effect. You know, just making that change just gives someone that boost. Okay, this is me. I'm aligning myself with the me. This feels like me. It doesn't feel like the illness. And it's all about helping someone align their actions with that newfound identity even if it's not secure it's about then exploring what that might be so then we can make it secure so we can strengthen that sense of self and 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 then yeah i think just to second that claire as well like the key thing you're talking about that whole process is time uh because obviously it's a very complex process but i think building that relationship first will give you that good connection that rapport that is essential but then as you go through this process of starting to unpack, like like Claire's just explained, that can be incredibly destabilizing. And it, I always use this analogy, it's a bit like going into a room, everything looks okay, but actually 
there's really messy boxes, there's stuff behind doors and it just doesn't feel, it doesn't feel tidy, it doesn't feel sorted, it feels just really overwhelming. And you start pulling out boxes, you start, you know, opening drawers and getting everything out and before you know it, the whole floor is covered and it's a tip and you think, why did I even cover the open, you know, open them cupboard doors because now it feels even worse. That's the part in the middle that people start to go, oh, why did I start this? It feels worse. Why did I come into therapy? I'm absolutely terrified and this has just made me feel horrible. It's that part that you have to start going, okay, let's take a breath. What we need to start doing is packing some of these things away, chucking some stuff out, you know. And once you start putting things in the right place, just very gradually, it does take time, but it will feel better when you start doing that. That's the kind of analogy that helps people sort of understand a little bit about that process because because it's 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 scary in that time mm. in that middle bit and and we often say Rachel don't we and you know when we're in sessions like we're on the floor with you <laughs> we're on the floor <laughs> we, we are on the floor with you surrounded by this stuff you're not on your own and I find myself mm. repeating that quite a lot in the week is you're not on your own you know because sometimes people have been on their own for a long long mm. time and because we we all know that an eating disorder really isolates people kind of mentally. You might be surrounded by lots of people, but mentally you're trapped. You're trapped. It's a human it. And because it consumes you, you know? And I think we often, I find myself saying that a lot, is you're not on your own. And when we use that analogy, we're on the floor with you and this is a mess, but we're together. You're not on your own. And I think these things can really help someone it's, you have to, you know, with that attachment and connection, I think people can face a great degree of adversity and change that they need to make. Yeah, I think I think that analogy is brilliant. I'm just imagining like a, a room that when you walk in, like you say, looks perfectly fine, but then you notice there's like something sticking out of the cupboard and you open it and it just all mm-hmm. And I think that is one thing that, you know, really, when I first started therapy was something that I was struggling with, because I was like, at the moment, like, it's all tucked away, it's all fine, like, we're totally dealing with it, and it's like, yeah, but if one, if one tiny, there's a, a tiny gust of wind, or like, someone slightly knocks something, like, that's when it all comes pouring out, mm-hmm. so I think, you know, that, that analogy is, is brilliant, um, and I love the idea of you kind of coming down and, and being with people with that, because like you say, it can, it can feel so lonely to, mm. to go through recovery. And I think even, you know, to have somebody to just maybe like understand outside of, you know, your close family and friends, because I think, you know, my mum is absolutely brilliant and I will kind of harp on about that until, until the cows come home. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I will try and explain things to her or I'll try and like, you know, vocalise what my thoughts are. And it, it just, I can't get across the mm-hmm. stress to her. And a part of me doesn't want to either because, you know, I don't want to put that on her, but I think to have somebody understand and to realise sort of what is going on, um, it's really helpful and then the thing that you're saying about time as well which is really funny because I was speaking to one of the listeners last night um shout out to Helen who is wonderful and sent me a lot of motivational pictures and things so very grateful for Helen um and we were talking about how um you know if you put a key in the in the car and you were scared of turning the car on got all of that fear but you turn the car on and it's on 
and it's done and it's like okay that was really scary and yes potentially I'm gonna have to turn the car off and then I'm gonna walk away um but I've, I've done it now and because she initially used that analogy with eating disorder recovery and that if you just turn the key on then you, you know you've done it and then that anxiety will reduce which I completely agree with because the more that you do something the more easy it becomes and it doesn't fill you with as much anxiety but I think the thing that gets me is that you know when you turn a car on you get an instant like mm. reaction to what you've done like the car is now on but with eating disorder recovery there's no instant like either you know hit of like oh you've done that now or it's not like okay well you ate that donut and you gained a kilo so therefore you know that that dread has happened that's what you thought was going to happen but like at least it's happened now we can deal with it it's that like slow Mm. progress of you you don't know actually what the outcome's going to be but you've got to keep on doing it and that's so scary to keep doing something Mm. it's so terrifying and not actually know what's going to happen and I think that for me is where the eating disorder then comes in because if you just turned the car on and it's on then the eating disorder doesn't have chance to be like, oh, you know, what could happen when the car turns on, blah, 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 blah. But when you are in recovery, because it's a mm. prolonged thing and it happens slowly, there's so much more time for the eating disorder to keep being like, mm. this is going to happen. This is going to happen. Like, oh, my God, but what if this happens? Like, you can just stop now because you've done it a few times and you don't need to do it again. But it's that slow, continued you know, keep adding on top of it. And I I think another really important thing that you've just connected there, Hannah, is about the unknown. And that can often, the fear. So sometimes people, and and someone conveyed this to us recently, is that they have the motivation, but it's the fear. It's the fear of the unknown that stops them. And what I often kind of reflect on is that you've done this. You know what life is like with an eating disorder. We know it. It's it's known. It's done. And what is it like? And generally it's, yeah, it's horrendous and I, I don't want to do it. So then I say, well, let's just give something else a go. And if it's, and if it's, if that's horrendous, well, you've done this path. So you know it. So do something different. And it's got to be better than where you're at. It's just got to be because you know this one. It's familiar. You know it. And there's safety in that. But it's also about, well, you don't know the other way. And if it is that bad, you know this route. So, you, you know, so it's, it's, it's almost, you know, it's, it's a bit of a challenge in a way. But it's saying to someone, well, you could, you could go back. But be curious about doing something different before you just tread the familiar path. And we often, I often talk about kind of, um, you know, like, well, I'm from Edinburgh, so I'm not a country girl. So, but you know, long grass, like if it's like wheat or something in a farmer's field, I'm saying, Rachel, help me out here. She's more country based, but, you know, or maybe, but, you know, <laughs> long, when I describe this, I think my clients are like, that's really, that's, yeah, clears from my city. I'm like, imagine this like <laughs> long grass wheat stuff. Yeah, I know it in my brain, but I don't know. And then I'll say, imagine that. And I think about things like, you know, because we all know that when people start to use positive coping strategies and replacement and negative ones, you know, so if someone's preventing a, a binge and they go out for a walk or someone's going to 
you know, avoid eating breakfast. Uh, and instead of doing that, they might do some journaling. You know, we, we're trying to actively replace negative coping strategies with positive ones. Now, just like what you're saying about the car, when you're doing that, it doesn't give that instant hit. It doesn't give the immediate gratification. Instead of missing breakfast, pulling out a journal, doesn't give you that that boost. Yeah, we've got to be real. We're very real and transparent. I think that's definitely our approach at TES. Is we're just real. We're di- we name things as we see them. And I think this analogy I always use is if you think about these neural pathways and things, you've been using these things for a long time. So they're very set in. So A happens, you get stressed, someone doesn't, you know, something happens, you go straight to not eating or being or, or whatever, binging or whatever the behavior is. And then the outcome is obviously that sense of all those emotions that come with it. Yeah. So what I always say is when you're learning a new coping strategy, it's almost like you're looking at this, this field and it's got long grass and there's these well-defined paths through this grass that you can see. And they're like not eating, over-exercising, you know, binging, whatever it is that, okay, this trigger's happening. I need to run. I need to go. And I'm going down that well-defined path because I know how I get to the other side there. I can get to the other side through it. When you're learning a new coping strategy, what you're doing is you're stopping and you're looking at all those paths and you're like, I really need to try and not do that. And then what you do, which is on top of that, is you start to tread the new one. You walk down one and you're making a new path. You're stem, you know, trumping on all this grass and you're trying to make this new path. And that's really hard work, right? Because you don't know where it's going. You don't know where you're going. And you're not getting that instant run through to the other side. You're not getting that gratification, that immediate gratification. So it is that kind of delayed gratification, but you will get to the other side. And then once that path's defined and you've done it once or twice or three times, if you just keep doing that, do you know what will happen? Those roots that are well-defined, the grass will grow over. And then you'll start using the ones that are, that are defined. And that's the kind of way of thinking about the way our brains work in neural pathways and then setting down because the more you do something the more it will give you give you good that feedback but immediately it it won't so these are really good kind of ways of kind of these analogies of explaining things and I think instilling hope as well but not being disgenuine not kind of saying oh yeah just do it you know why are you doing that's not a good behavior just do this you actually have to say yeah this is tough this is really tough and actually, you're, you're, we're not expecting you to be perfect. You might have days where you run down those well-defined paths. But if we can have some days where we're starting to tread these new ones and we, we opt to use these new ones as much as we can, then we're, we're, we're creating a change, aren't we? We're doing something different. And so then there's this openness and this curiosity for new things and a new way of being, a new way of existing, you know? Yeah, I love that analogy that it's like, so. I mean, I think I'm a very like mm. image based person as well. So I can like see myself like hiking down those new pathways. And I think it's so important to be open and transparent with that because, you know, so many times I've kind of been in services and they've said, you know, get mm. so I, yeah, <laughs> that's not really mm. like, you know, I understand that journaling will help me in the long run, cool. But when I am like, 
completely in a Ooh. mad panic about what I need to do. Just you just say to me, Oh, just whack out your journal as if it's really, you know, mm. take a breath. Uh, mm. um, <laughs> or just eat or whatever. Then it you know, it really makes you feel mm-hmm. like you just don't get it. But actually, you know, your honesty of you know, the behaviours that you're using currently, they are really working for you and, you know, they're giving you that kind of hit that you like mm. and that you want. And these be- new behaviours won't, but in the long term, mm. they really will. Um, and I think that's something really important to recognise in eating disorder recovery is that often the behaviours is because you do just want that, whether it's a sense of relief or a sense of pain, mm. um, or you know, just a sense of something that is quite overpowering. It's so important to recognise that that's what somebody's seeking, because you know I found putting new coping mechanisms in really difficult, because mm. um, they don't give me that buzz that I need. And then you have to kind of sit with those feelings, and I think that's often the hardest part is is sitting mm. with things. And one of my friends said to me the other day um, that as part of her recovery, she's got to sit with emotions and work through them because she uses her eating disorder to suppress her emotions and she was like you know that's nothing to do with food you know sometimes I might have to sit when I'm feeling full and that makes me feel uncomfortable but actually sitting with those uncomfortable emotions rather than going and you know doing any sort of behavior that for her is where it's Mm. going to be really difficult. I think what what we what we have to be mindful of as well is that what you just started off there with Han was that these stuff, when you're at a crisis point, when you're really overwhelmed, when you're highly anxious, when you literally don't know what else to do apart from leaning into the eating disorder and its behaviours, is that these interventions are going to be best served before you hit that point. So almost like a traffic light system. So as soon as we start working with someone, we'll be saying, OK, let's uh, let's put a couple of things in this week, see how they go. Just try them when you're not distressed you know when you're not about to go into a meal or when you're not feeling more vulnerable when it's not kind of you know all these trigger points start practicing them on a daily thing so they become you know you're treading that pathway before you're in that panic mode before you're like so overwhelmed that actually you can't then you don't have the capacity to start treading a new pathway when you're already desperate to run through the old one so it is about practicing that instilling that knowing that what works and what doesn't and and as well as, you know, like Claire said, uh, no one's perfect. We don't expect perfection from any of our clients. By all means, we're not perfect. No one is. And I think what is really helpful to learn is that we know that recovery isn't linear. So people are going to have mm. bad days. People are going to still use eating disorders behaviors. The feelings aren't just going to disappear just because they're having eating their meal plan and, you know, not using compensatory behaviors or whatever it is that they might be doing there are going to be them days where the eating disorder overrides it but the thing is about that is that that doesn't mean we failed that doesn't mean they're back to square one that doesn't mean all is lost that is a a really powerful learning tool to use then it you can then look at that reflect on it process it okay what was it that triggered you what was it that you found so overwhelming on that particular day that there was no other option what was it that you you know it hit from a to z what was the bit in between and when you start reflecting on that like you say 
it depends on what that eating disorder behavior was giving them at that particular time. So it might have been they were seeking comfort. It might have been they were feeling really out of control and actually they're trying to seek some control. It might have been that they wanted to punish themselves because they were feeling really awful inside. Whatever that is, you then have to think about what the corresponding coping strategy is for that. So, for instance, you know, if they're feeling just so overwhelmed and high, it might be something that we're looking at. Right. OK, let's think about something that might give you sensory feedback rather than like, oh, I need to go for a run. Mm. Like, OK, right, let's think about holding ice. Let's think about flicking a rubber band. Let's thinking about, you know, the Jacobson technique of like, you know, tensing body parts and releasing them. Again, they're not going to give you that instant hit, but it's practicing that knowing which coping strategy to put in for what you need at that particular time. and knowing when you're reaching amber point before you reach the red and putting that in place. And I, I think as well what's really important to note is that, and I've just, I've just kind of thought, reflected on this just now, is that as a therapist, part of the attachment and getting to know someone, you're able to almost intuitively select or suggest open strategies that would stand in for the ones that someone's using negative ones so often for example you know if we have clients that self-induce you know vomit um what i've often found is you know uh, there's so i'm just thinking about a couple who come to mind and i've just had a feeling that they need physical feedback you know they don't need to sit and journal they need to perhaps you know throw a ball at a wall or they need something more physical as opposed to something more sedentary or and and I think that's another kind of it comes from obviously I think experience as a therapist but I think it it comes a lot from just intuition and attachment with with your client with with people because you you again getting to know them getting to know them them trusting you you trusting them and having that really good core attachment you, you get to know and you almost get a feeling or an intuition about what might work for them as a stand-in. Mm. And that's something that I've only just recently started to reflect on is that there's certain, after building that therapeutic relationship, rather than me pulling out a kind of textbook and going, right, okay, uh, try journaling, try having a bath, <laughs> try going for a walk and do the five senses technique. Try to instead of doing that, I've actually used my knowledge, my, you know, my connection with the person and my awareness of them and who they are, mm. and maybe those little bits of identity, and obviously knowing the reasoning why they're being pulled towards that negative coping strategy, and then finding a really apt and unique replacement for that, which what you were connecting before that people just saying, yeah, just eat, you know, or just pull out a journal. Mm. You know, there's a part of that that really upsets me because it's not authentic, really. If you have a really good connection with a client, you, you, you know, you're able to suggest things that really might, might cut it, but obviously it's going to take time. Um, yeah, I think... In the same way of like how we were saying, you know, everyone's eating disorder is unique and everyone's recovery is unique. Like giving coping mechanisms is, is really good, but 
I think there then comes a thing of like, oh, well, that one didn't work for me. So, you know, maybe recovery is just not for me because mm. that coping mechanism didn't work. And I have gone through so many different coping mechanisms of, you know, people saying, oh, this really worked for me. You should try it. Mm. And then you try it and you're like, it's not giving me what I need. Um, one thing I found, which I, I don't, I mean, maybe people have mentioned it. I've just not really heard it. Plaiting my hair. Mm. Um, so I will like go for a shower and the, sh- the shower, I think, gives me that like sensory, you know, like just taking my clothes off, feeling quite free and the warmth of the shower, um, making sure that I keep like the temperature regulated and stuff like that. And then getting out of the shower and obviously I have a lot of hair. So <laughs> take a very long time. So I can spend many an hour uh, plaiting my hair. And I think it's mm. doing something with my fingers. Mm. Um, I think doing, because I'm doing something with my fingers, I can't. Like, I can't actually do anything else. Um, Often I'll, like, put music on or something, but I wouldn't probably, I shouldn't say this because I'm, I am a podcaster, but maybe not listen to a podcast because mm. it's sometimes a bit too much, but that's just my personal preference. Mm. Um, But that's taken me quite a while to mm. sort of think about. And I think the one thing that I found as well is because I am doing something with my hands but not necessarily with my head, kind of linking to what you said Rach of like it actually gives me time to think okay so I really wanted to go and exercise Mm -hmm. and I haven't I've gone for a shower and I'm now plaiting my hair why did I want to exercise and so rather than like not engaging in the behavior and just not engaging in the behavior and trying to learn from Mm. not engaging in the behavior and be like you know why did I want to do that what was Mm. it that made me feel like I I needed to Mm. to exercise was it that I'd eaten and I felt uncomfortable was it somebody said something that made me feel uncomfortable um but again it's you know Mm. such a slow process and you have to do that so many times to then feel comfortable in doing that and then one day I'll be sat plaiting my hair be like oh my god this is not this is not it (laughs) so just because it's worked one day doesn't mean Mm, so I think it is so complex mm. um but it sounds like you guys really understand that and it's so refreshing mm. to hear that you do mm. and a lot of the time what we have to say is that if you can hold on for a little while feelings do pass they might be so intense and so difficult at that time but that urge to be sick or that urge to exercise or that you know wanting to restrict or whatever it is uh, it does pass mm. not saying it all goes away completely but and also sometimes the more sometimes distractions great brilliant <clears throat> a really helpful tool but if you're always always distracting mm. you're never actually going to give yourself enough space to sit with any distress so you're not going to be managing you're not going to be able to regulate your own emotions you're not going to be able to know what works or what doesn't there is a level of distress that we do encourage if it's the right time and, and we feel they can tolerate that that we do encourage our our clients to feel because an eating disorder is fantastic for absorbing your emotions not having to sit and feel mm. anything um and also something you know like for instance being sick is it is a very mm. aggressive thing to do but it, it, it's a it's a state change it's an emotional state change and it's very quick uh it's short-term relief and it's you know and then all the other kind of more difficult feelings might come after that but if you can find something that that does work in the interim and let that pass it will do Mm. in time 
so yeah I want to move on to EMDR and kind of the process of change and because that was one thing I found was that a lot of overwhelming change happened and <laughs> sometimes it was really overwhelming and you know my therapist would be like the next 72 hours are going to be hard and I'd be like mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so really excited to speak to you about EMDR so but for the listeners do you mind I guess firstly just kind of telling us what EMDR is and how the process works mm. Yeah, so uh, EMDR, um, short for Eye Movement Desensitisation and Reprocessing, which is clear why people shorten it down, because that is horrible <laughs> to say. <laughs> um, so what it is, is a psychotherapy tool. Um, and again, it is generally something, it is a standalone therapy, if that's what you choose to do. But what we choose to do with it is implement it into our, all, our already standing um, approaches. So, for instance, if we were introducing uh, EMDR into, um, uh, say, after we've built that rapport, we've got a good connection with our clients, and and we're starting to do that initial exploratory work of, uh, you know, looking at the past a little bit, seeing where they are and how that um, how that informs their present at the moment. And then, if we're starting to find that perhaps there's trauma that they've experienced and that might have contributed to the onset of the eating disorder and still maintain it um or not necessarily even trauma itself it can be uh you know um just as an overview i think was what you were asking han is that emdr was initially something that was used um for like post-traumatic stress disorder like vet veterans and things like that but it has evolved since then and it can be now um used is a really multifaceted tool um, across all different uh, different mental health phobias, anxiety, eating disorders, body image, things like that. So what we find is we don't use it with everyone. It's something that we get to know our clients and and start to think if they could benefit from that. Um, and again, it, obviously, it's, it's if we know there's a, a straightforward trauma there or multiple traumas or a cluster of traumas is what we call them, if they're within the same kind of um, area, uh, it would seem like the, the one of the, the kind of routes that we would follow down. But we would also, because we because of the way we work in that combined way, for instance, Claire might be working with EMDR in one session and then the, the, the second session that they'd have with me within the same space, I might be then be working on um, something like just checking in with them, a holding space, a, a space where they can kind of reflect on their week and process anything or, you know, just to kind of keep that containment and stability going. Rachel, let me just interject. Um, Rachel's got very good occupational therapy skills now. <laughs> she's, she's, that she's, comes from working with a very good occupational she, therapist for many many years kind of, so, so um i suppose the 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 nuance there is i think that because we do see people twice in one week so they get one session with each one session with me if we do feel that emdr is appropriate one session would be based on that because it is obviously a very structured approach and it doesn't give space for people to reflect and think about the present because 
as you know, Han, you've experienced it. Rachel and I have obviously experienced it. We've practiced it because when you train with an EMDR, you have to you practice it in a training environment. You go through the process yourself and you administer it on other clinicians um, to practice. Um, and it is very, very structured. So it is a, it is a, it's a process in itself and it's a very kind of, it's a standardized procedure. So there's no room for people to log on and say, oh, I've had a really difficult week. I've been really struggling with this behavior. You have to use the whole space because the recommended um, session for EMDR is 90 minutes. Um, we have 60 minutes. So it, you know, even with 90 minutes, you can, you can do a big check-in. So it does kind of mean, but I suppose me and Rachel feel, I've found that naturally and intuitively, one of us takes a more structured approach in the week and the other one then takes a more free-flowing approach in the week. Um, and that's just something that intuitively, again, we're adapting to what the clients need. But I'm um, sorry, I interjected there, Rachel, really explaining EMDR. But... No, no, that's not a problem. It made me laugh. Uh, and equally, Claire's a very good uh, psychotherapist as well now. <laughs> we, we have to be mindful. We do know about our boundaries and qualifications, but we, we do, we do uh, have a really good understanding and knowledge because we work so closely um, defined um, together. And something that I wanted to pick up on just before you do explain it is the idea of trauma, because that was something I really kind of struggled with when I went for EMDR, because obviously started seeing the word trauma and post-traumatic stress mm. disorder all over the place. And I was like, well, I haven't had any trauma. Yeah. Like, you know, my, my life has been pretty idyllic. You know, I've got great parents, great siblings, you know, always been in a friendship group, you know, not had anything drastic happened. And I was like, why the hell am I being told to do EMDR? Like, not, well, I guess maybe there was like a, I'm not worth mm. a bit because I'm not, you know, I've not had a bad enough life or whatever. Mm. So I think if you could maybe explain a little bit more about that as well, because what I came to realise was that whilst I hadn't had any sort of like physical trauma, the emotional trauma of being mm. inside my body was what came up for me so much. You know, when we went through the EMDR, it was massively the feelings of sitting in my body mm. that came up for me. And that was what I had to reprocess. That's a really good point, Hannah. I, I, I don't know how many times I, I could, ugh, I don't know, I lose count of how many times people said to me, mm. I haven't suffered trauma. And when you start to reflect and you say, you kind of say to them, and you have to be careful about this because trauma is a big word. It feels, it feels really significant for some people that, again, they don't think they've experienced trauma. When you're saying to them, actually, that mm. is traumatic. I think you have experienced trauma. That can feel massive and that can feel really, again, destabilizing because they think, what? You know, um, so you're absolutely right. Trauma doesn't necessarily just mean, oh, you know, I've, I've um, been in a really traumatic accident or, you know, I've, I've had some level of abuse or, you know, I've been in a huge earthquake where lots of people died. Not, it doesn't necessarily mean a huge traumatic experience like that, but it can be what we call these big T's and little T's. So these kind of smaller T traumas are, are everyone will have suffered one or at least multiple ones of them over their lives. Even to, even to the point where we think about something like grief, 
And again, everyone in their life will have suffered grief or will suffer grief at some point. And it's a normal human process. But it can be a really traumatic experience for someone. And uh, again, it's like you've just pointed out, it's the trauma of being inside your own skin. Like even the process of having an eating disorder is traumatic in itself. So we do have to explain that word trauma, what that means to people and to, to go gently with and that. And I, I think on reflection, that is a process in itself before you even, with a lot of clients that you, again, we're talking about these kind of really um, um, emotive fueled words, aren't we, that are quite ambiguous because it's all about how they're applying to the individual in front of you like recovery or trauma or, you know, these things. And uh, trauma is very subjective to the individual. And I think when we start to talk about trauma with clients, that often is a process that you were connecting with, Hannah, about, well, that that isn't, you know, I can't connect with that being traumatic. That wasn't traumatic. Um, Because people kind of view, again, trauma as a significant event like an event you can put your finger on or a really significant, you know, like a big term, like that was kind of physical abuse. You know, people are looking for these big, big events and it's, and it's not, that's not the case, you know, and actually another interesting angle, which is kind of off, well, it's on topic, but off is that, you know, if we think about someone with autism, for example, you know, there was, um, when I was doing my training in EMDR, there was a lot of talk about is EMDR appropriate for individuals who are autistic. And we were talking a lot about how everyday life is traumatic for people with autism. You know, there's a lot of trauma that maybe a neurotypical person wouldn't experience that someone who's more neurodivergent would. So again, it just brings it down to really the basics is that trauma is very subjective. If something's been traumatic for you, it's been traumatic for you. And I think thinking about how we explain this to our clients, the process. Now, I feel under a bit of pressure because your EMDR therapist did the Ribena explanation. And that's a fantastic one. (laughs) I'm really sorry, Hannah. I'm really boring. I'm very geeky. I give very... I get very boring explanations of EMDR because I love I'm very like you I love research I'm very kind of so you know that the understanding really is that you have trauma is unprocessed that's why so it's almost like fragments in the brain that are lying around and events that can happen can kind of trigger those trigger those things off those memories those unprocessed traumas those unprocessed memories um, because they haven't been properly processed and organized in your brain. So how we how I kind of explain it is that you have this, you've been through something that's been traumatic, and because you were so you were under so much distress when it was happening, the part of your brain that the amygdala was in a really heightened response, and actually I think it enlarges. So what happens then is that memory cannot be processed and properly stored and packed away and filtered into and connected with other memories so for example when you're recalling a negative event you know something happens at work and you're like oh this happened to me before in that job 
And what did I do there? That's an example of a negative event that's been properly stored, that's, that's really nicely stored in your memory that you can access and learn from. It's not traumatizing. So I remember when my boss did that, it wasn't nice. Oh, oh what did I do in that situation? I did this. That's that example. However, when the amygdala is really aroused, that, that memory, that event cannot be passed to the hippocampus and it can't be then organized and neatly stored and connected and become a past event then. It's almost like you're reliving it now and again and again if something triggers something off. So something that hasn't been processed, a trauma that hasn't been properly processed is then just lying there and it's almost very vulnerable and it can be triggered at any given time and that's what makes it feel like it's happening now rather than it was a past event. So what we do in EMDR is the idea behind it is you keep the, the prefrontal cortex online. So you keep someone present. And that's what happens when you do bilateral stimulation. So when you do the tapping or you do the eye movements, you're keeping the part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex online while someone's processing that trauma, which keeps the amygdala it, it, it doesn't get as heightened or enhanced. So it then means that that memory through the process of keeping someone online in the present can be then passed through to the hippocampus and then stored eventually. That's my geeky way of explaining EMDR. It's super geeky and boring, right? It's nothing like your, whoever your therapist is, we need connection needs to give me some creativity because um, I... I, I, but that's the idea, right? That's how we kind of explain it is that, you know, uh, because traumas are things that when they get triggered, it feels like you're in them right there, right then. Whereas if you think about that past event wasn't very nice and you can think about it and not feel like it's happening to you now, that's, that's a sign it's been processed properly. So through the process of EMDR, keeping that prefrontal cortex online through the bilateral stimulation, the eye movements, the tapping. You're then calming the amygdala down, allowing it to go to the hippocampus and for it to nicely do its job and get it all stored away. A little bit like that analogy with the room, tucking things, putting things in the right boxes, connecting things up. It, it really helps to see how it can work for eating disorders as well if you've got that unprocessed, you know, whatever it has been that you then lean in to use the eating disorder to sort of navigate because you've got that unprocessed situation, the eating disorder becomes the thing that you use. Whereas when you're then able to process whatever's happened, you don't then necessarily need to lean into the eating disorder mm. to kind of just numb everything down mm. because you've got the ability to be like, okay, yeah, this has happened. It's okay. Mm. And, and I think the, the, the mm. interesting thing about EMDR because obviously we can't go into great detail, but you know, and, and maybe a lot of listeners won't know about what I mean by bilateral stimulation, like the eye movements and tapping. But essentially, um, the process is very heavily structured. Um, if we were wanting to talk about how it feels, I think clients would say that it's very structured. Mm. It is kind of standardized. So, and as a therapist, there's there's techniques that you use to kind of help with the processing of the the mem the, the trauma. Um, and once it is done, because really the theory is is that it's the brain's 
you're you're allowing the brain to do you're you're enabling the brain to do naturally what it can do on its own so as a therapist you aren't really doing much apart from facilitating this process which actually for a client is quite mind-blowing because they're thinking I haven't sat here for 10 weeks and reflected on that trauma and 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 are feeling different I've sat with you for maybe a couple of sessions you've wiggled your hands in front of my eyes or you've made me tap myself and 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 now I'm not feeling like that's as triggering and I actually think it's a really important thing to notice that for a therapist, when you start to learn and be part of the MDR, you have to kind of shut up and you have to kind of contain yourself because you're so used to intervening. <laughs> but actually, all you're doing is allowing the brain to do what it naturally does. Um, and mm. so you have to just trust in that, which is pretty amazing, actually. It's an amazing kind of skill to have as part of our skills at, you know, at TEDs. But clients feel really in awe of it. You know, often they finish a session, they go, I don't think that, did that really happen? That's really weird. <laughs> people that maybe, you know, have came out of being an MDR session with Rach and they came to me a couple of days later and went, I still can't believe I'm not, feeling is distressed about that and it's it's a very kind of you know it, you spoke about hypnotherapy you know when Rachel was training it I remember I used to say oh don't talk to me you know you're gonna end up hypnotizing me you're gonna you're gonna <laughs> make me do it you know because actually it's a pretty magical process but actually I think it's just because as therapists you're trained to kind of analyze reflect you know and be very mm attached and, and, and connected and kind of overanalyzing and over and, and facilitating whereas with this it's a very standardized process and you're just sitting back doing what you need to do but allowing the client to just mm. the brain to do what, what it naturally can do kind of thing and there is one thing I'll interject there is that I it's, it's a three-pronged approach as well so you can you are looking at um kind of past triggers traumas you know you're looking at present day triggers things like that and you're potentially looking at kind of future templates and things about what potentially their fear might happen in the future you know so it's a really well-rounded um tool but again when you're talking about eating disorders the complexity comes into it again because there's still a lot of fear there's an ambivalence there mm. and it's not a quick fix it, you might you might start one particular thing in a session and you might go, wow, great, processed it in one session or two sessions. But that's just one tiny little bit of, of the picture. It's not just, you know, someone came in and said um, nothing to do with eating disorders. Someone said, I had a car accident. You process it in one session and it's like a single trauma and it's great. OK, fab. I'm now not scared mm. to get in the car. Brilliant. But because we know that eating disorders are so complex and so multifaceted you have to really go carefully about all the different parts and elements and the targets that you're using um it, for instance it, it research proves that uh trying to use emdr for body image is is really difficult um because again you're you know you're you're having to navigate through lots of kind of 
past, present and future kind of thoughts as well as, you know, it becomes, it becomes mm. quite challenging. But again, what we, what we do say is we found it incredibly mm. helpful as a tool, but also that fits in with other mm. approaches that we use um, because, again, mm. it's not one fix, yeah. it's all. It's interesting that you say that, actually, because that's exactly what I used it for. I used it for body dysmorphia. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think you're so right in what you say and that it is it takes a lot. Like I had weeks and weeks and weeks of mm. like nothing was changing. Yeah, I'd go and I'd be unconsciously crying like I'd have my eyes closed and I would be tapping and I'd just be like my eyes were just like completely bawling out mm-hmm. um and, but then you know I'd still have all of those feelings and then all of a sudden it clicked yeah and if I hadn't have kept going and you know stayed on it you know thinking oh I'm gonna have this magic cure um today and I'm gonna be sorted then I don't think it would have worked but because I had faith in the approach working mm-hmm. um and I could feel you know those those hours afterwards um of, of things kind of reprocessing and stuff like that it it was a very overpowering I think if I had to describe mm. it in one word it would be overwhelming yeah. like you know I used to if I had a session I would say okay I can't have any plans for 72 hours because if I had gone through something I remember there being a time where I'd like gone through um a particular event and then I had a panic attack Mm. in the same sense that I did like 48 hours afterwards and I was like I can't I don't want to be I I need to be in like a a safe space for that so it is a very Mm. overwhelming experience but Mm. the effects of Mm. it can be so powerful um and I would say now I, I don't have body dysmorphia which I never thought that I'd get yeah that's amazing absolutely amazing I think the prep work's incredibly important as well Han when it just popped into my head in terms of you know people uh, who have eating disorders body dysmorphia can be really disconnected to their bodies so in the process of the assessment phase when you're doing EMDR you're asking people to connect on an emotional level like on a, a cognitive level and on a really physical, semantic level as well. And when someone's struggling to really know what that is, or what it, or even inside their own body, when you start to, you know, really try to get them to connect with that, they find it so hard, and they don't really understand what you're asking them to do. So there is a lot of prep work as well in terms of emotional, uh, just pe- people really being able to engage mm. within their own bodies and 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 understand what their emotions mm. are and what's coming up. So that kind of history taking and preparation phase mm. is is crucial um which is what we kind of do the history taking in our other mm. modalities anyway to get to know them first which is an incredible privilege because we don't just come in and then have to do all that history taking just in mm. the, the kind of format of emdr really incredibly you know grateful that we get to to flex to the client mm. which you know is <laughs> That's uh, a really helpful way of working. Well, thank you both so much. Um, I think this episode has been so useful thinking about the process of recovery and, and the difficulties. Often, I think we forget about the sort of length that recovery can take and the difficulties yeah. that we might face. So I think it's really important to reflect on those. Where can people go to find out more? 
So we've got our website. I mean, we're on the Beat Help Finder as well, so people can get us from there. But and then we've got social media and things like that, you know, and Instagram and they're yeah. all on the website. All the handles for each one are all listed on the website, so you can get you can you'll be able to access our blog there, our you know LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, Facebook, yeah. and Twitter are all on there. So we're everywhere. <laughs> Come find us. <laughs> Amazing. It's been a pleasure to speak to you both again. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Han. It's lovely as always. Thank you for your time. If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode. So be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.